It's good to see you today. We are in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. What does it mean to be fickle? To be fickle means something that is changing frequently, especially with regard to one's loyalties and affections. Especially with regard to loyalty and affection. We have all been around fickle people. Uh, we live in a, in a fickle world, uh, a world that is full of sinners and full of people that are always changing their tone and changing their mind. With some things, it doesn't matter. I am a very fickle football fan. We've got some folks that are really passionate about what's going to happen today. I am not one of those people. I really don't care. And uh, that really annoys some people that I change my loyalties all the time on that. But when it comes to relationships with other people and relationships with God, being fickle is a real problem because we are called to faithfulness. When we get out into the world and we're amidst the world, we often encounter people. If, if we are for them and what we're doing serves their purposes, they are with us and they love us. But as soon as what we're doing doesn't serve their purposes anymore, they are against us and, uh, and desert us. We can often feel betrayed this way. We have all been in a situation where the fickleness of people hurt us deeply. Someone that we thought was a friend, someone that we thought was for us, turns against us when we no longer serve their purposes. And we can feel very alone in this. But always, what is happening with Jesus in the scriptures teaches us that he was tempted in all ways as we are and struggled in all ways in his humanity as we do. And we're going to see today a passage that is shocking related to the fickleness of man. But Jesus walks through it and continues to seek after the purposes of the Lord in his life. And so let's stand together and read Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30 as we honor the Lord, reading his word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding county. And all he taught, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So, uh, just an amazing contrast in these verses. We go from verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, to verse 29, And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill so they could throw him off a cliff and kill him, separated by a grand total of seven verses. So that is how fickle we can be as people, how radically our outlook on things can change. But let's take a look at this whole story. Let's begin in verse 16 because it says something so interesting that I want to point out to you. As Jesus' ministry began there at the baptism, uh, his baptism by John the Baptist, and he goes out into a time of temptation and returns in power, having not submitted to any of this temptation, and begins to, to teach throughout the land, and there's this joy and this zeal of, man, this is exciting, what is happening with Jesus? And he comes back to his hometown to minister to them, to speak to them in the synagogue. And it says in verse 16, as he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So the as was his custom part, I want you to grasp that he had been raised going to church, as it were, every Sunday, that his parents had brought him up with the custom of being in the synagogue each week. And so let me say a word about the synagogue. What is a synagogue? The synagogue was different than the temple. In the Old Testament, the, uh, the temple, first of all, the tabernacle, which moved around as a tent and then made permanent in the, in the, in the temple, uh, was a place where only the priests were allowed and sacrifices were offered and uh, special holy days were recognized, but it was not a place of, of intimate or local gathering. And so what happened was when the people were exiled into Babylon and there was no temple, they began to meet and gather and worship and read the scriptures in local context. And this grew out to become something called the synagogue or a local gathering place, very similar to what our churches are today. So they would gather together and had a certain custom of how the scriptures would be read. So they would begin, sort of as we have uh, sung the doxology here week after week. By the way, I love singing that at the beginning of our time together. It just really focuses our heart of worship on the Lord. Uh, Jews in old days would read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, the the Shema, or Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and it would remind them of who they were as Jewish people. And there would be a speaker of the day, or a, or a teacher, if you would, and they would go and pull from the scrolls of the Old Testament and unroll and read some from the Pentateuch, or read some from the prophets, and instruct the people in the ways of the Lord that they, quite literally, might not forget these things. And there was always someone that would teach a little bit, and then uh, sit down. And so this was the custom of Jesus, established early on by his parents. He's following it here, and we see the apostles continue on in that. When they began to first preach and teach the gospel, they would go to the synagogues. They would go to the local meetings of Jews and appeal to them that this Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, long foretold in the Old Testament. And it should be, I would say, our custom as well. Our weekly worship here together is not just something that that we have made up or come up with at random, but it is something long passed down that we should gather together once a week to focus our hearts and minds on the Lord Jesus. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, Let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we take a time once a week that it's a regular pattern and habitual part of our life that we gather together, we sing together, we seek how to, how to encourage one another on towards love and good deeds, we interact with each other, pray for each other, and we go out from this place back into the struggle of the world knowing that we will be back together again soon. So Jesus returns to Nazareth, to his hometown, at the beginning of his ministry with all this buzz going on, and the floor is yielded to him because of what is going on with him. People know that he is the speaker that they want to hear from that day. And so the scroll is, is pulled out. He pulls, selects Isaiah. It's Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he begins to read. And he reads what we have here in verses 18 through 19, which is a quotation from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. This is a well-known Old Testament messianic passage, or a prophetic passage having to do with the coming Messiah. And everyone there that knew anything about what was going on in the, in the book of Isaiah knew that this was a prophetic passage having to do with the Messiah. He reads it, he rolls up the scroll, he sits down, because unlike me standing before you, the, the custom of the day was to sit down and speak, which sounds like a great idea. It would be uh, much, much more relaxing. But he sits down, and the passage says that all eyes were upon him to see what he would say, and he says the most wildly unexpected thing. He says, today, in your hearing, this passage has been fulfilled, which means loud and clear, I am the Messiah. You have been waiting for 700 years for this passage to come to pass. And all of the rituals and Passover feasts and things that you have, always looking forward to the Messiah. I am the Messiah and I have come. And this is an, a shocking passage. This is something that the whole nation of Israel has been waiting for for many, many years. Forgive me, guys. This thing is killing me this morning. I'm going to just take this clip off here. Um, there we go. Many, many years, and it finally comes to pass. All of us have had something like that in our life. We've waited for a very, very long period of time, and when it actually happens, it just seems surreal that it's actually come to pass. And so it is here with Jesus in the midst of them. And he's telling them, I have come to proclaim good news to you. Good news to this group of people, and he, he describes the group of people that he's preaching to as poor, as captives, as blind, as oppressed, that he might go to these people and tell them how it is that they might have peace with God, that they might have their sins forgiven, that they might have eternal life. And it is very important for us to note that this is the message of Jesus. The primary purpose and role of Jesus was not to provide food for the poor or economically help the poor. The the primary role of Jesus was not just to set up an ethic that we might live a better life by. His primary role was not to perform miracles for the sake of performing miracles. But all of these things focused on one message, which was the message related to the soul, that we might be forgiven of our sins and have peace with God. And that through that, because of the love of our fellow man, that we might go help them. Because of our love for God, that we might live according to his will. And to affirm all that Jesus was doing, many miracles occurred. 
heard. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the sole focus. That's his purpose. That's what he stays laser focused on throughout his ministry is proclaiming what it means that we might be forgiven of our sins through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus from this point forward would usher in a a worldwide ministry that it would go out from Israel, which is what he's getting ready to lay on them, and they are not going to like it. That he is not just the Messiah of Israel, but he is the Savior of the whole world, of every people, of every nation, of every race. He is the Savior. It's also important and interesting to note in any time when you're studying the Scriptures, not only what is there, but what is not there. And what is interesting about this is where Jesus stops his reading because nothing is is accidental, everything is purposeful because the second half of verse 2 in Isaiah 61 is, is a passage that goes on to speak about judgment. But Jesus stops right there at the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor which is a, is a um, recognition back to the year of jubilee or the idea of of a time where all is forgiven and we don't have time to discuss that this morning but it ends on a high note because the very next line in Isaiah goes to speaking about how this Messiah will also be a judge and will be one who brings in vengeance against the wicked but he stops there because it's not time yet for that to be fulfilled Jesus will one day also fulfill that aspect of the prophecy where he will come as a judge but not yet At this time, he comes as a savior. And so the people are surprised. They they are shocked by this, and their their first recognition is what you would be if you were from Nazareth. They say in verse 22b, is not this Joseph's son? Wait, I grew up with this kid. I know know this person. Uh, Don't I know this guy? Yes, I know he lived down here. He's Joseph's son. How can this possibly be the case? Because we know this person. And Jesus begins to, to quote things related to uh, how a prophet will not be uh, with honor in his own hometown, very similar to familiarity breeds contempt. Like, I know this guy, so he couldn't possibly be famous or be who he says he is because I know this person. But it ultimately has nothing to do with the situation. But they want to believe him. And they began speaking well of him, and all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They wanted a Messiah. What type of Messiah did they want, though? And that becomes more evident as the Gospels unfold, that the people wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that was going to not only forgive their sins, but deliver them from the Romans, which were occupying their nation. And they were living as an oppressed people. And the prevailing idea of what this Messiah was going to be was someone that would organize the people and throw off the Romans to make their land a free land again. And this was not at all what Jesus was about, but they have not grasped this yet. But this is the hope of the people. But Jesus jumps straight in, as he always does, he never beats around the bush, to what type of ministry he is going to have. And that his ministry is not going to be about reestablishing political Israel. Instead, it is going to be about reaching the nations with this good news of the forgiveness of sins. And so, as any good teacher, he gives two illustrations. He gives two illustrations from the Old Testament. The first is in verse 25 and 26 where he talks about Elijah and a widow at Zarephath. This is from uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. 
In 1 Kings 17, we get the full story here where there's a wicked king, Ahab, and the rebellion of the people is such that God is going to judge the nation and he's going to bring a famine, a long-term drought on the land to humble the people. And Elijah is the prophet at that time. And he tells Elijah, go tell Ahab that there's going to be a, a, three, there's going to be a long famine. Until you cut it off, until I say so, there's going to be a famine in the land because of this drought. And Elijah goes out. And God tells him, I'm going to sustain you at this certain brook. Well, when the certain brook goes dry, he sends them on to this land or this area called Zarephath, which is east of Israel, outside of Israel, to a widow there. And he comes into this town, and it's a very emotional story because this lady is picking up sticks, and he asks her for some bread. And she says, yes, you can come in, but I'm going to eat. We're going to make one loaf, and then we're all going to die because I don't have any more food, and this is the end of the line. And so she does make him this bread, but he says, if you will make me this, God is going to continue to provide for you. Believe that the Lord will provide, and he will. And it's one of the miraculous stories of the Old Testament where this woman keeps being able to make a bread because the flour and the oil never run out until the famine is over, until the drought is over. And it's one of the early stories in the scriptures of God providing food by multiplication. There's many, many stories of that in the scriptures. And that's what we normally focus on in that story. God providing through miraculous means for someone that was hungry. Well, that is part of the story. But Jesus brings a whole other aspect to the story here. And that really has nothing to do with this application. This application is that there were lots of people starving in Israel. And he sent Elijah, his prophet, to another land, to a different group of people to provide for that person and not for the people of Israel. And the idea is God showing his grace to people outside of their nation. And that it was God's choice to do that, to go and show mercy to a foreign people. And then he jumps straight to verse 27, gives another story related to Naaman and Elisha, which was the prophet after Elijah. And in that story, Elisha is in Israel, but they are being attacked by the nation of Syria, which is immediately to their east. And Syria has a great captain. The captain of the army is a guy named Naaman. He's the enemy general, and he has attacked them to such an extent that they're taking captives. And the story goes in uh, 2 Kings 5 that one of the captive children that they had taken was serving in his house. But instead of this captive child hating Naaman, because Naaman had a problem, Naaman had leprosy. He was a great general, but he had an incurable disease that was going to kill him. And this young girl says, if you would just go to Israel, there's a prophet there that knows the Lord, and he could heal you. And instead of hating this man, this girl tells him, you need to go, go to Israel. The, the true God is in Israel, and by this prophet, he could heal you. And so this man packs up, and, and it's a long story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but he goes back, brings a, an official letter to the king of Israel with all these gifts and all this gold and all this stuff to try to basically buy a healing. And the king of Israel says, you know, what, what is happening here? You know, who are you? And do, how, do you, how do you think I can heal you? I can't heal you. And he ends up making his way to Elisha. And Elisha gives him a very, it's a wonderful story. One day I'll have to preach on the whole story. But it's an awesome story in humility. Because Naaman comes in as the man. He's the four-star general with the whole trail of entourage of people and money and gifts. And this is going to be a big to-do. And he knocks on this, this humble prophet's door. And Elisha doesn't even answer the door. 
He sends his, his, uh, his uh, sidekick down to tell him, tell him to go and dip seven times in this river and he's going to be healed. Thank you. Have a nice day. Closes the door. And this guy loses his mind. He's like, I've come all this way and you know, he's raging against him. Who is this guy to tell me this? And, and his, he's got another sensible servant with him. Says, hey, if he had told you to go do something crazy, you would have gone and done it. Just go do this simple thing. Just do it by faith and just go do it and let's see what happens. He goes, dips seven times in the Jordan River and he comes up and he's He's perfectly healed. And again, the healing and all of that, there's so many things that could be said about it. But for the purposes of this story and what Jesus is trying to illustrate here is that it's an enemy of the nation of Israel comes to them by an orchestrated calling of God and that God is willing to heal the enemy of the people. This is, the, this is the enemy general attacking the country and God heals this person because of his great mercy to all people. And they don't want to hear this message. Like what, what kind of a Messiah is this? If this Messiah is going to be one who shows mercy to our enemies and heals our enemies, this is not the type of Messiah that we are looking for, but this is the type of Messiah that Jesus is. He is the Messiah that calls us to love even our enemies. And he is the one that is reconciling all things to himself. And so God calls into Israel, the chief enemy of the nation to be healed. I want to say before we go into what happens with the people here and their reaction to this, a very important sidebar in this message. Because what we have here is Jesus talking about the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament, speaks about the Old Testament. We've got four different characters here. Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, a widow. How does Jesus talk about these people in this passage? He does not speak about them as mythological or, or in some way not existing. He speaks about the word of God always and the Old Testament as being the word of God. And when he refers to people in the Old Testament, he always refers to them as real and historical. And that is very important. We can't miss it. It's something too important to just pass over in what we're reading here today. Because Jesus, when he spoke, when he opened that scroll and he read from the prophet Isaiah... This was a real prophecy. For him, it was something that was given to Isaiah by God that was to be fulfilled, and he was the fulfillment of it. Everything about it was real. It was not something that was hypothetical or something uh, other than the word of God. And when Jesus spoke about Old Testament characters, he always confirmed their reality. The reason why he's speaking about Naaman and this widow is because these were real events. These were real events that showed the real action of God towards enemies and towards those outside of Israel. So it was a real and meaningful illustration for these people who also understood it that way. If we are to live for Jesus and to imitate his character, we must have the same reverence and love for Scripture and God's revelation as Jesus did. A guy named Timothy Ward wrote it this way. Jesus himself treated the Jewish Scriptures, our Old Testament, as themselves word from God. And so we are going to be, if we are going to be devoted to him, then we must make sure that our view of Scripture is the same as his view of Scripture. Very important. The Old Testament's full of difficult things. And when we go to studying the scriptures, the Old Testament can be very deep, sometimes very confusing, and sometimes just outright offensive in some of the things that are in there. And we're not sure how to deal with those things. 
But when we look to Jesus and we know that he lived and he existed and we love him and his, his, his writings are easier to understand, we have to work our way backwards. And we have to see that Jesus was the Messiah that came out of and was spoken to and pointed to by the Old Testament. And as Jesus loved the Old Testament, we also must love the Old Testament and honor it as the Lord's word. So I ask you this morning, do you read much in the Old Testament? When I'm talking about these illustrations here with these characters, are these characters that you know? Have you read 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5? When was the last time you read 1 and 2 Kings or read the book of Isaiah? I challenge you this year in your Bible reading to not only read in the New Testament, but go back to the Old Testament and struggle through these things that perhaps it's been a long time since you've read or these stories that may have been years and you've lost the details of those stories because the details matter. So I encourage you, love the Old Testament and honor it as Jesus did. So he gives them these two illustrations as to what his gospel ministry is going to be like and that it is going to be an outward-focused ministry to the nations when they were looking for a nationalist message or just a general spiritual message. The idea that the Messiah had come and that he would go out and seek the poor of other nations and call in the powerful from other nations was an unthinkable message to them. And clearly they understood what he was saying because it says that their response to him was wrath. Sometimes when you preach a message and it's a dud, people just kind of walk out the door and they don't really care. Or sometimes it's a, you get that bless your heart because it just did not go well at all. But when people are angry with you, that means they understood you, but they hate what you're saying. And that's what happened here with Jesus. And they rise up and they reject him. His own people rejecting him. Isaiah spoke about this as well in 53, 3 through 6. Jesus, who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected by people around him. In John 1, 11, again, it speaks of Jesus' rejection. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. The Jews did not receive Jesus. They rejected the message that he had. They were back and forth and back and forth, but in the end, they crucified him. There are many things that we could talk about, but I want to I focus in on three points of application to what happens here with Jesus and him proclaiming his Messiahship and his early gospel ministry. First is do not put your hope or find your identity in the fickle praise of people. Put your hope and identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us do. We may not think so, but we put great stock in what other people think about us. And we so want their approval and we want to hear good things from them that we may either do things that we know we shouldn't do or we're just absolutely crushed when they do not love us. When these people rejected Jesus, he did not turn away from the message that he had been given. He did not turn away from the will of God for him. He went right through their midst in this wonderfully mysterious way. I'm not sure what all that means, but somehow or another, they were getting ready to kill him, but it was not his time, and so they could not touch him, and he just walked right through their midst and kept going. But what did he go? He didn't blunt his message. He didn't change his message. He kept going with what God had charged him to do. I encourage you, hear and believe the good news of salvation. Stand on God's promises. Hope in his unconditional love and grace. Pray to him. The Lord Jesus himself will never disappoint you, whereas the people of this world will always disappoint you. Even the people that you love the most will disappoint you because we are all sinners. 
My prayer for you in this is not only that you would put your hope and find your identity in Jesus Christ, but that you would pray for faithfulness. Faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and it's the opposite of fickleness. Fickleness has us going back and forth and all over the place as if tossed by the wind and the waves. But a faithful person is one who is steadfast, one who endures and does not give up, one who is always able to seek forgiveness, grant forgiveness, ask for forgiveness, and sticks with the relationships that are around them and sticks with the will of the Lord. And so I encourage you, be a faithful person and do not be overwhelmed by the fickleness of the world. Second is the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. It is vitally important that we hear uh, the word of the Lord. John 1, uh, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All those who put their, their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Jesus is not the savior of the West. He is not the savior of the rich. He is the savior of all the world and goes forth to show the sick, the weak, other nations the mercy of the Lord Jesus. It goes out into all the world. This is the, the missionary calling of Jesus Christ. We live in a very multicultural time, multicultural day where there's a great mixing of the nations because of how easy it is to travel. We have a lot of people from other nations and other places in our own community. And it is very important to reach out to those people and include them in what we are doing here. But it is also important for each one of you to take seriously the missionary calling of Jesus Christ. To at some point in your life, in some way, be involved in speaking to other nations and other people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And understand that it is not just for us, it is for all the world. And in everything that Jesus did from the very beginning of his ministry to his ascension, he was pressing his apostles and his disciples outward to give witness, to speak about who he was to the rest of the world that the gospel might reach the ends of the earth. And this brings me to my third and, and, and last point of application to this passage is the, is the wickedness of racism. I'm going to read from uh, Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 12 because this call of Jesus to go out to our enemies, to those that are outside of our nation, because this is what stirred them so angrily here was that we were going outside of the nation to bless other nations. And this is what brings us directly face to face with the idea that am I going to hate other races and other nations or am I going to have a gospel mindset of loving all nations as a nation, as a person, and not cut off any one group of people because of my uh, prejudice against them. Because in heaven we're going to see this, Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 12. This is the the summation of the fulfillment of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ is the salvation of so many people over many, many hundreds of years. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. So what I want you to notice here is that it speaks of every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
I wrote to you a little bit about this in the newsletter this past week, that God is working to bring people to himself from every nation and from every race, and we must have a part of this. We cannot close off our heart to our enemies. Jesus is directly clear that we should love our enemies and show good to those who are, are against us, and that it is not okay for us to hate any particular nation or people group and say, I will not speak to you about the gospel because I hate the nation that you are from or I hate the people that you are a part of. And if you have any particular people group or nation that your heart is hardened against, it needs to become an aspect of prayer for you, that God would actually give you a gospel burden for those people. These people in this story that we read today hated the Syrians. They hated the Syrians. There are many people in our day and age that hate Arabs because of the wars that we have been in for a long period of time. But we must understand that Christianity began in those areas. And when we look at these areas, if you're honest with yourself, there are brothers and sisters in Christ in these areas. We have Christian brothers that are persecuted and sisters in these Middle Eastern areas because of their love for Jesus. And we must remember that and seek to encourage them and see others come to salvation. And where there are no believers and unreached people groups, we must intentionally go to them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we go out in this missionary calling to take this message of Jesus to them, we are not taking the West to them. We are not converting them to our culture. We are converting them and seeking them to have them believe the good news of Jesus Christ. There was a revolution in Western missions um, some over 100 years ago with a man named Hudson Taylor when he went and first formed something called the China Inland Mission because they went to China to reach people with Jesus Christ with the gospel, which was a, a wonderful thing. But they went in English suit and ties. And they would bring tea and tea time and the whole bit. And when you came to Jesus, you were basically becoming a British person. And that was a problem. And Hudson Taylor saw that. It's, it's not my goal to have Chinese people become British people. It's my goal to have lost people come to know Christ that they might be forgiven of their sins. And he was a real radical when he did away with his suit and tie and put on the robes and grew his hair out long and had a, had a big... Um, Chinese ponytail like they had back then and went inland to reach people as a Chinese person as close as he could that they might see Jesus only and not the trappings of his culture. And this is our same passion today to go when we go to Africa in May some of us we are going to seek to, to teach and to train local people about the gospel and not convert them to becoming westerners and western style and western ways but that their hearts might seek Jesus only. So my prayer for you today, as we, have, as we close this up, is that you would follow Jesus, that you would leave behind an enslavement to the fickleness of man, and that when you're hurt by people, you would look to Jesus and understand that he has experienced those same sufferings and those same hurts, and he will sustain you through that time of struggle, that you would raise your eyes to heaven, and that you would see what God is doing through the world in Jesus Christ, and that you would not be like the people of Nazareth, closing off your heart to the work of the Lord because it doesn't look like the work that you want to happen. Instead, may our hearts be changed that we might be on board with what Jesus is doing in the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for our time together. Uh, I thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. 
I thank you for what he proclaimed, that he has come, that he fulfilled these prophecies. And we know that like he fulfilled the first prophecy of his first coming, that you, Lord Jesus, will fulfill other prophecies and that you will come again as our Savior, that you will come again and judge the world and that you will end all things according to your will. Lord, we long for your coming. But while we are here, we want to be busy about your work. I pray, God, that you would lift up every heart that is crushed down by the the hardships of this world and that we would look to you. I pray for any heart, any person that has not put their faith and their trust in you today, that what I have said today would appear to them as it is good news, that today they might confess their sins and be forgiven and be welcomed into God's kingdom. And Lord, I pray lastly that we would be a church always outward focused, that we would always be looking out to those that are different from us in other nations and other places, that we might busy, be busy about speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might know him. And Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.